Now it gives me a great pleasure to call upon our brother Colin Hollenby of the Glenlock Ecclesia, South Australia, speaking on the Epistle of James and his subject for study one is temptation, what is it, and why it comes. Brother Colin. Brother Chairman and our dear brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ and dear young people. What we are going to consider together over this weekend is really known by us as the practical epistle, isn't it? The epistle of James. And while we are not even going to try to enter into a thorough investigation as to what James has to say to us, we are indeed going to take out of those five chapters some of what we think are the highlights and perhaps the most practical parts of the epistle. We're not going to attempt to go into the background. We think that is rather irrelevant to us today. It might be interesting to look at James in its original context, but we're looking at James in 1989, and therefore we don't have to look at the circumstances in which James particularly wrote. There are, of course, some parts of the epistle that do reflect those particular circumstances and perhaps those particular circumstances alone but we will be leaving those parts of the epistle mostly out of our consideration. So when we begin with James, knowing that it is an epistle that is going to draw out very, very practical lessons for us, we are not to be afraid of that, brethren and sisters, because what we do find in the epistle of James is our lessons that really do get to the very centre and to the core of our lives to extend to open up our own hearts to ourselves and that is something which we never want to be afraid of. If that's our attitude, brethren and sisters, to the word of God, well, we need to throw it away right away and forget about it altogether if we think we're going to be afraid of what we might find. The only thing we have to be aware of in this matter is that we're not trying to justify ourselves we're not trying to point fingers at anybody else. We're trying to say and to agree with God that God is right. And that's the only thing we need to do. And once having said that God is right, we need to understand that he's always right and that therefore our job in life is to get alongside of God. And in a sense, and we do not want to be misquoted, in a sense... When God sees that there is a mind who wants to get alongside of him, the times in which we will err, either inadvertently or by weakness or maybe even by rebellion, will not be very difficult to deal with. It's like two friends who are one. It's like a husband and wife who have got one mind and they may have difficulties in the marriage but there's really not much difficulty in overcoming the things that sometimes cause those little aberrations that come to all of us in whatever relationships we may bear to one another. And that's the way it is with our Heavenly Father. He is a father who pities his children and he's not so interested on making sin large as he is on making his own ideas large. And therefore, when we get the idea to make his ideas large, sin will diminish and God will not focus on it so readily and so strongly. 
But that doesn't mean to say that we should not see sin for what it is. We do have to see sin for what it is. We have to get alongside of God's view. And that's what we will attempt to do as we consider this epistle together. Now sometimes we will talk about academic faith. James is the epistle that is well known in our circles as being the epistle of works as a result of faith. The epistle that demonstrates faith in action. And brethren and sisters, when we consider sometimes what we hear about, well, he's just got an academic faith or she's just got an academic faith, we really need to ask ourselves the question, is it really faith? Because whenever faith is talked about in the Bible, it is not something that is dead and lifeless, it is something which is alive and vibrant. And that's how faith is always demonstrated to us. It is therefore quite impossible to have an academic faith. We might believe the things or say that we believe the things of the truth. We might give consent to our Birmingham amended statement of faith. But the issue is, is it really faith? Have those things generated in us a reflection of the likeness of the glory of God? That is the issue that we need to come to grips with as we in these days in 1989 grapple with the principles of truth in the environments in which we live. Now James, as he writes in his opening greeting in verse 1, really does so very abruptly. He does not seem to be the kind of person that, for example, the Apostle Paul was. And while we can easily dispense with the fact of Holy Spirit inspiration, we're not trying to do that, brothers and sisters, when we say that James does seem to be a different sort of a character than that of the Apostle Paul. We do not find many terms of endearment through this epistle. So it's a letter that is written perhaps from a fairly non-attached point of view. Not that James had no feeling for his brethren and sisters, but perhaps because he is writing to a very wide selection of people, many of whom he had never even met in the truth. We don't know that to be the case, but it's possibly so. So he simply asserts that he is a servant both of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he is writing to the twelve tribes that are scattered abroad. And then begins by addressing them, yes, as brethren, and telling them that they are to count it all joy, in verse 2, when they fall into diverse temptations. And what we're going to occupy our mind with most of all in our first session together is what James tells us about temptation. First of all, he tells us why it comes to us, and then he's going to turn his attention in verses 13 to 16 to a very important matter that sometimes we do not understand and sometimes we misapply. But it is nonetheless a very important matter to find out just in what temptation consists. So when we look then at verse 2, 
James encourages the brethren, and therefore us, to count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. Now that's a very difficult thing for us to do, isn't it, brethren and sisters? And yet it's not. James is not telling us to count the experience a joyful experience. He is saying that we ought to count it or to deem it a joyful end because temptations are given to us for a specific purpose and that when we are exercised, as verses 3 to 4 go on to say, when we are exercised as to the reason why temptations come, we can really look back and say, Yes, there have been results that have accrued in my life because I went through those particular experiences. And when he talks about falling into diverse temptations, he is talking about like a rain of temptations falling down us, all around us. That every day we walk out of our houses and they are there in many and varied forms. They might be within the house as well. But when we walk out of our houses every day, there are many and varied experiences which he says are various diverse temptations. And that, if we are to understand the reason for them, we must count this life a very precious experience. We are to not understand that it's a joyful experience, but we are to account them as joyful experiences. Because we should know, he goes on in verse 3, that the trying of our faith worketh patience. That the trying of our faith worketh patience. Now we very often, brethren and sisters, look at the first of Peter, chapter 1 and verse 7, and we say there the apostle Peter says that it's the trial of our faith that is much more precious than of gold that perisheth. And we tend to think sometimes that the gold that Peter talks about is the result of the trial. But that's not really what Peter is saying and it's not what James is saying. The gold is the end product. We are to count the process as gold. That's what we are to account as gold. It is of more value than gold. It is the trial of faith that is much more precious than of gold that perisheth. It's not the end product. That certainly is a very valuable thing. But James and Peter both endorse the idea that it's the trial that is necessary. And when we come down into verse 3, that's what James is telling us. We know, we have a deep and abiding knowledge of the fact that it is the trying of our faith that works patience. That's what's golden. So therefore, it helps us to look back on the experiences of life with some form of joy, with an expression of a calm delight, as the word means, because we can see the hand of God making us into something that we would not otherwise have been. Because none of us, brethren and sisters, deserve salvation. 
The only thing that God is intent on doing us with us now is to make us in some way worthy of that. Not that the flesh in any way can be worthy, but by the vicissitudes of life, by the experiences of every day, there is a moulding process going on. And that that moulding is being developed into a likeness of the glory of God. Now, James says that this trial of our faith works patience. Now, what's patience? Well, I suppose sometimes we think about patience and we might say, well, I've seen a young child doing a jigsaw puzzle. And they can sit there for hours and hours and hours and do jigsaw puzzles. That's got nothing to do with biblical patience, brethren and sisters and young people. Nothing at all to do with it. That child, or that adult even, may just happen to enjoy the challenge. It might be a part of their peculiar makeup that they just enjoy doing jigsaw puzzles. The word patience in the Bible has really got nothing to do with that. It's got to do with endurance. It's got to do with a patient abiding under the trials. And a person delights to do jigsaw puzzles, it's got nothing to do with abiding under trial. Here is a person who, when the trials of life come upon him, have developed a certain attitude of acceptation of those trials. And they therefore experience a calm and an inner peace as those trials come along. They are not people who are just happen to be given to resignation. They are people who have learned to endure in the face of odds. And that patience, says James in verse 4, has got a perfect work. So that we are seeing another link in the chain now. The trial of our faith is necessary to work patience but patience is not the end of the road either. Patience has got to yield or to bring forth the fruit of a perfect work. And the word for perfect in the Greek language is that word teleos. We know what it means. It means to be complete or whole. But the very basic idea of the word is that it means to set out a definite point or goal. So when we take the ideas of verses 2 and 3 and 4 together, we see that there is a picture, says James, of an end product. We've got in mind an end product and that the passage whereby we attain to that end product is a certain attitude of mind that is induced in us by an acceptation that the Father overrules our life and that we are then able to look at experiences of life in a calm sort of a way. We are able to resign ourselves to the will and to the wisdom of God, and therefore there is produced in us an attitude of resignation to the moulding process that the Father brings us into. We are therefore enduring, we are patient under trial. And as the Lord Jesus Christ says in Matthew chapter 24, he that endures to the end shall be saved. And the verse before that says, 
Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that endures, the same word for patience here in James chapter 1 verses 3 and verse 4. He that endures. And brethren and sisters, there is an endurance which is called, which we must fall under today and which we must manifest. But what's the iniquity that abounds around us? We know what the iniquity is that abounds around us. But brethren and sisters, we don't very often think of it being a patient endurance to be able to sustain ourselves in, that, in the face of that iniquity. It's a very comfortable feeling that pervades us today because iniquity abounds. And there is a very real need for us to delineate what James is saying here. He is not saying that life is going to be easy. He is saying that in the face of the falling all around of the temptations that come upon us, easy though they may be, delightful to the flesh, much different to those things that James's brethren and sisters experienced in the first century, when some of them were sawn asunder, thrown to the wild animals, made to wander in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute and naked, the same end faces us through not the same circumstances. It's very comfortable to fall under the iniquity of the day today. How then do we accomplish what James says in our circumstances? Well, it's very obvious, isn't it, that we've got to know the iniquity as God states it for us. We've got to come to grips with the iniquity that does and can engulf us. And therefore, there's got to be a steadfast resistance to it, a patient continuance in well-doing in spite of those matters. So then in verse 5, and we are hurrying over this, brethren and sisters, we don't make any apology for that, but verse 5 says that if any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Well, I don't know what James was really thinking about when he said, if any of you lack wisdom, but perhaps he is just tending to be a little bit more gentle than I may have been if I was writing. But really it's not a matter of if, is it, brethren and sisters? It's not a matter of if any of us lack wisdom. The kind of wisdom that is necessary to see the process that he has outlined. It's a matter of the truth that we all do lack wisdom. We may see that in a general sense by just acknowledging the principles, but we need to approach God for wisdom so that we might carefully, the more carefully, perceive what he is trying to do with us, to get alongside of him, to acknowledge him in all our ways so that he might direct our paths. So therefore, he says, if any of us lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And that's the first problem, isn't it? To ask of God. How do we ask of God? What does it admit, brethren and sisters, when we ask anything of anyone? it admits straight away that we are unable to perform. 
And there is really a very great difficulty for the flesh to admit that we are unable to perform. That we are unable to perceive what God is trying to do with us without the wisdom which can alone come from him. And the Apostle James writes and he says that if we ask, God will give that wisdom to all men liberally. And that word liberally is a word which is rendered in several different ways in our New Testament authorised version. It's rendered in the second of Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 11 by the word bountiful. It's rendered liberality in second of Corinthians 9 verse 13. It is rendered simplicity in Romans 12 verse 8 and singleness in Ephesians 6 verse 5 or single in Matthew 6 verse 22 the I being single. So what really does it mean? Well, it means that God will give to all those who ask when they admit that they lack wisdom, he will give to them singly. He will give bountifully, yes, that's true, but he will give to them singly. And that means, brethren and sisters, that our God being one and being unable to be tempted with evil will only give for one reason. There is no other reason for which God will give the gift of wisdom. And that, of course, does not come down from heaven miraculously. It comes by a patient application to the word of God and laying the principles of that word over our everyday experiences. So therefore... God gives to a person for only one reason and that only one and single reason is that the person understands why he needs it and that is to get alongside of God to understand that God is always right that God doesn't make mistakes in the experiences through which he draws us day by day God has got one objective with us Therefore, he is saying, you ought to have but one objective when you ask me for anything. And I will give that one thing, that proper gift that you require, on the basis of one intention as far as I'm concerned. God says, I am single. There is no variableness, neither shadow of turning with God, as James goes on to say a little later on. But then... James adds in verse 5 that God will give to all singly and he will not upbraid. And if we ask with that in mind, it shall be given to us. And that word upbraideth not is a very important insight, brethren and sisters and young people, into the very character of God himself a very important insight. Now we're encouraged, aren't we, that we might be children of our Father. And that word upbraideth not means in the Greek to defame, to rail, to chide or to taunt. And we are therefore able to see a picture of the God of heaven who gives with a single intention, there's only one motive which is behind the gift of God, of wisdom, and he will not, in the giving of it, 
defame, or rail, or chide, or taunt. And when we compare that with our attitude sometimes, somebody may ask us, what does this verse mean? Oh, don't you know that? That's not God, brethren and sisters. That is not the attitude with which God gives. And if we are going to be manifested as children of our Father, then we cannot give in a patronising or sarcastic or rude way. There's only one way we can give. And that's the way God gives. He will not upbraid the person who wants to know. He will not chide or taunt or defame the person who has got a singularity of intention. He may not deal that way with other people, but he certainly will deal that way with people in whom he sees the need and the genuine desire for wisdom. And he will extend himself, he will stoop from heaven to the earth to give what is necessary when he sees the right intention. But the qualifying statement in verse 6 is, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. There must be no driving like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. There must be no quivering about the direction. There must be singularity and singleness of intention with that person who asks. For, says James in verse 7, don't let the kind of man who wavers think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. Not anything. And how does that square, brothers and sisters, with our attitude to what we own? You see what James is saying? He's saying if there's a mind that wavers and that is not steadfastly faithful, if there is not singularity and purpose, God won't give anything to that man. God can't deal with a man like that. God can only deal with people who are straight and upright. He won't have dealings with people who waver one way one day and another day the next. It's just impossible because his nature is such that he is fixed and single and he can't do anything else than that. And therefore James goes on to say in verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So therefore, verse 9, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. And what is God saying? He is demonstrating his consistency through the mouth and the pen of James by showing that every man is brought to the same level. That as God is single in his mind in the way in which he gives gifts, so is he single in the distribution of what is the truth. Because when people come to a knowledge of the truth, whether they be low or whether they be high, one is brought up, the other is brought down, so that there is an equality that pervades the whole. And then the example of that is given in verse 11, that the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat but it withers the grass and the flower thereof falleth, the grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. And then verse 25 says, uh, rather verse 12 says, 
Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Here is a person, brethren and sisters, and verse 12 concludes this little section of James chapter 1. Here is a person who is going to receive a crown of life when he is tried. Now he's been tried all his life. So the trial here mentioned in verse 12 is the trial of the judgment seat. He's going to come forth to the judgment seat and he is going to receive a crown of life. Why? Because he has endured. He has developed the patience of the scriptures under trial. He has patiently abided under the vicissitudes of life so that what has sprung forth in his life is a perfect work very incomplete when compared with God or with our Lord Jesus Christ and yet complete because he's got the wisdom to know why God has done certain things with him. He has seen that there has been a pattern emerging in his life that has made him into the image and likeness of the Elohim. So he's going to receive at the end of his days a crown of life. And that's what the Apostle Paul talked about, didn't he, in the second of Timothy, chapter 4. We'll turn there for a moment. And this really expands on what James has to say to us in chapter 1 and verse 12. Verse 7 of the second of Timothy, chapter 4, the Apostle says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. What is being said in verse 8? Paul says, I've fought a good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Therefore there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. But James doesn't call it a crown of righteousness. He calls it a crown of life. And there's a very interesting little preposition in there, brothers and sisters, and that's the word of. And we need to notice that in both those places. It's a crown of righteousness in the second of Timothy. It's a crown of life in James chapter 1. It's not a crown for righteousness in the second of Timothy chapter 4. Because the person knows that he is incomplete and he is not righteous. He's seen the hand of God in his life. He has recognised the purpose for trial, but he is far from a complete man. He is far short of the standard that has been set in the Son of God. So therefore he cannot receive a reward for his righteousness he receives a reward of righteousness because that is really what he has sought in his life. He has sought to get alongside of God who is right. And although we cannot anywhere near manifest righteousness in its entirety, we have hungered and thirsted after it. And that's what Christ said in, in Matthew chapter 5, didn't he? Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And what have those people done? 
they have readily admitted that they cannot possibly be righteous in this life in its entirety. But they want it. They want a mind that is like God's that can only emit righteous ways because God is single. So they will receive the gift of it at the appropriate time. So when we come back into James chapter 1 and read that blessed is the man that endures temptation, he is a person who has had the goal marked out. He has seen the perfect work toward which trial and temptation is directed. And you take that goal out, brethren and sisters, and there is no reason on earth or in heaven why we should surmount the trials that face us. As soon as the goal is removed, as soon as the end point is taken out of our vision, it's like Brother Islip Collier said, if you want to get somewhere, you take the limited objective. You want to get across the other side of the stream, you first place one stone out there. And then you may have to go back and get another one to go a little bit further. But keep the other bank in, in sight. Because as soon as we let the other bank drift out of our vision, we will fail. It's like the man who sets his hand to the plough and looks back. He's not fit for the kingdom of God. So in verse 12, James concludes a brief look at the successful man. Successful in inverted commas. Not because he's successful in his own right, but because he has learned patience and he has learned through the experiences of life to direct the wisdom that he has admitted he has not got of himself. He's asked of God. God has not derided him. He has not, in a, in a sense, been patronising to him. He has given him with the intention of making that man right and to get alongside of God himself. But unfortunately, brethren and sisters, it's true that sometimes we fall into the error of blaming God for when we fail. And we say, why did God do that to me? We say that, don't we? We all say that from time to time. Why did it happen to me? There is an attitude of questioning what God wants to do. And while it is true that we must seek for a reason, we say that sometimes very, very loosely with an inflection upon God himself. And James now, in verse 13 down to verse 16, gives us a very potent lesson about the fallacy of that way of thinking. Because when we do say those things, when we do question the hand of God in our life, what we are saying, brethren and sisters, is really an admission, that, an admission that we fall on, isn't it? We say, well, why did that happen to me? And we have gone a step beyond acceptance and sometimes even trying to look for a reason. The trials of God are not so much to prove him as to improve a man. That's why they come. And the trials of God, therefore, are to be accepted upon that basis. So when James says in verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, 
Neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. And it's very obvious by a very cursory reading of those verses and comparing them with the previous run of verses that here is a situation that ends in death. Whereas the situation at the end of verse 12 ends in life eternal. So what then is James trying to tell us in verse 13? Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Does God preside over the temptations of life or doesn't he? And we need to be very, very careful sometimes in the Bible, brethren and sisters, because sometimes words change their meaning. Let's think of what the Lord Jesus Christ taught us to pray. He said, lead us not into temptation. Do we pray that? Then how is patience ever going to have its perfect work if God doesn't lead us into temptation? There's a real difficulty, isn't there? But it's not a difficulty when we understand what James means in verses 13 to 16. He is now describing the process that occurs with a man who falls He's not describing the process which happens when a man succeeds in understanding why temptation comes. He's looking at a person who blames God for his falling into error. And therefore he says, let no man say when he is tempted, what did God do to Abraham? He took him on a three days journey expressly to put him to the test. And these are all the same root Greek words here, brethren and sisters, but they mean something different in the context. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, because it is absolutely impossible for God to be tempted. Neither does he tempt any man. Now, James says, what do you mean? We ask him. Well, I'll give you a definition of what I mean when I say that God does not tempt any man. Verse 14. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And the word for enticed in the Greek is the word for ensnared or entrapped. So here's a man, brethren and sisters, who has begun to think in a certain way. And he goes along a certain way and there's two things come together and he's ensnared. And a man who's ensnared can't get out of that. And that's what the diaglot says for the beginning of verse 15. The diaglot is a very correct rendering of the words that there appear in verse 15 and it says, Then the inordinate affection... Having conceived, that's at the entrapment stage because the man's ensnared by his own lust and he's fulfilled the requirements of Matthew chapter 5 where the Lord says, he who is drawn away by a certain lust has done the deed already in his heart. 
Here's a man who's going to fail when he's put to the test and he's drawn away and he's ensnared. There's a conception has already taken place in his mind so that the diaglot rightly renders verse 15, then the inordinate desire that is back here drawing away, that inordinate desire has already conceived and the language that James is using comes straight out of Proverbs chapter 5. The simple one among the youths. The simple one who's been lured on by a wicked woman. And before he gets into the house, brethren and sisters, we know the result. We know that long before he got into the house, he had been sold down the stream of sin. And that's the process which happens to every man. Under the definition of temptation in which God is not involved. That's the kind of temptation that's being addressed in verses 13 to 15 because that inevitably brings forth sin, says James, and it also, of course, brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren, says James. He says, don't ever fall into the trap of thinking that that's the objective of God. That's altogether man. That's altogether man. We constantly go like that. But do not ever fall into the trap of blaming God like Adam did. Because that's what Adam did right in the very time that he sinned. He said, the trouble, God, was that you gave me a woman. That's what he said. And we can fall into that trap, brothers and sisters, time and time and time again. We can blame something else that may be of God, that may have been given to us of God, and we fall because we don't endure the trials of life. We don't endure temptation, so we fall into another definition all the time. And really what James is saying in verse 14 and 15 is that the type of temptation that he's describing is actually sin. He's not stopping halfway along. He says temptation is a man who falls, he conceives in his mind and he falls. So don't ever err, my beloved brethren, because every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Those things haven't come from God. They haven't come from above. Every good gift, that is natural things, and the perfect gifts of life, the gift of wisdom, comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither a shadow of turning. And so, brethren and sisters, we'll have to leave it there for now we find that James really does make things very, very practical for us so that we can understand them, so that we can think about them and so that we can act upon them in our lives today.